One of my favorite TV series of all time is the show Friday Night Lights. For those of you who aren't familiar with the show, the series follows the lives of a number of people who live in the uh, fictional town of Dillon, Texas. The story, as you would expect in a small town in West Texas, centers around the high school football team, Friday Night Lights, with the primary characters being the head coach and his wife, Tim and Tammy Taylor. Part of what I love about the show is the truthfulness of it. It doesn't show the worst of life, but it does touch on a lot of the worst issues and most difficult issues that we face, racism, poverty, brokenness in families and relationships. And it addresses these realistically and also with heart. The show, in a sense, reflects the motto of the head coach, Tim Taylor. Coach Taylor's motto for his teams and for his life is clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And that's essentially the way the show deals with the stories, realistically and with love. Well, little did I know that that same motto would come back to me this week in studying this text from 1 Peter, but it did. In fact, if we had had enough letters for our reader board out front, I might have given the sermon the title, Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, Can't Lose, or maybe The Gospel According to Coach Taylor. In his own way, in this morning's text, Peter encourages disciples of Christ to be clear-minded and big-hearted in both how we view our world and how we live in it. Of course, the way that Peter states the first part, we read in verse 7, the middle of that, uh, be clear-minded. It doesn't say clear-eyed, uh, but clear-minded and self-controlled. The reason, he follows up immediately, is so that you can pray. Be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. And the way we can do this is the way he starts this, by rem remembering the end of all things is near. This life that we're in, in the moment, won't go on forever. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. I think some comments from scholars on this passage help us understand a, a little bit more what it is that Peter is after. Scott McKnight, a, a contemporary U.S. theologian, notes that Peter's first bit of advice is that Christians keep themselves mentally and spiritually alert. Thinking that the end of history is at the door and the judge is about to enter through it can energize one's prayers and lead to specially effective focus in those prayers. William Barclay, a Scottish theologian from last century, adds, it's only when we see the affairs and the activities of earth 
in the light of eternity, that we see them in their proper proportions and their proper importance. As I was saying earlier, in our world of hyperactive news and social media fighting for attention that brings profit, it can be extremely difficult to discern what in our lives and what in our world is worthy of focus and attention and concern. God encourages us through Peter's words to keep in mind the things of eternal value. All that the scriptures and Jesus teach us are important. It's not about the Dow Jones average or how political parties are polling or whether JFK Jr. is alive and going to show up in Dallas. It's about feeding the hungry, healing those who are ill, sheltering the vulnerable. The U.S. theologian Wayne Grudem writes, Christians should be alert to events and evaluate them correctly in order to be able to pray more intelligently. What this verse teaches could well be put into practice when reading the newspaper, listening to the news, traveling to work, and so on. He writes, I would add, like I was with the kids, or these days, when you're doom-scrolling through social media. Have clear eyes, or as Peter puts it, have clear minds, and full hearts. Peter puts it this way, verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply. Above all, love each other deeply. Jesus himself said that the whole of the law could be summed up in two commands. Love God and love others as we love ourselves. All of it in those two. Love God, love others as we love ourselves. And this is not some sentimental, easy love. This is life-changing, community-changing, world-changing love. Peter says, above all else, love deeply. Again, Scott McKnight explains what Peter is after here. Love deeply, that is, they are to work at loving one another. Because doing so in the midst of stress is difficult. Peter uses specifically the Greek word agape for the type of love that he is talking about. This is the love that is unearned. This is uh, a love that overflows from the heart of the one loving. This is the love with which God embraces us. And Peter goes so far as to say, above all else, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. This is an astonishing saying. Love cover, covers over sins. Peter is saying that love is even more important than following the rules. If you're going to choose one or the other, choose love. 
we essentially see that in action in the way the woman loves Jesus in our gospel passage and the response that we see from Jesus to that. The Pharisee is playing by the rules. He's saying, if, if, and you notice that I love the, the fact that he thought this to himself, but Jesus knew what he was thinking. He thought this to himself, that if this man were a prophet, he would know who this is that's touching him, who this woman is, that she has lived a sinful life, that she is a sinner, he writes, or he says. And then Jesus answered Simon, I have something to tell you, teacher. Tell me, teacher. And he does the story, a little parable about if two people owe someone and one owes a lot, one owes a little, neither can pay, they both get forgiven, who's going to appreciate it? Who's going to respond to the one who forgave the debt with greater uh, love? And the Pharisee gets that part right, at least says the one who owes more, who was forgiven more in that sense. And I love this, that Jesus turns towards the woman, but says to Simon. So he's not even, he's not even giving Simon the courtesy of looking at him as he says this. He's, he's lifting up the woman, even as he says, do you see this woman? Because Jesus sees her. That's what he's acknowledging. I see her. I came into your house. And you didn't give me any water. And he goes on to all these things that he didn't do that he was absolutely supposed to do as the host of this dinner. And she went beyond, far beyond what he was obligated to do, even as host. Because that would have all been sort of customary for washing his hands and, and anointing his head and things. But she's weeping at his feet. And, and again, the, you know, the, the roads were not asphalt. The, the sidewalks were not, there were no sidewalks. This was, people's feet were nasty and dirty. And she is washing his feet with her tears and her hair and then anointing them with this beautiful perfume. And then Jesus ignores the guy who's chosen to do the right thing over choosing love. He ignores him entirely and says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That is love covering over whatever it was, her life. And notice that she just, her, his reputation had gotten out enough among sinners that when she just heard that he was going to be there, she goes out of her way to be able to be in his presence. That story gives body to the words that we hear not only from Peter about love, covering over a multitude of sins, but that proverb that most scholars believe Peter was quoting. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. And of course, 
the ultimate love covering the ultimate wrong is God's love of us and forgiving us all of ours. Think of how much better our world might be if we all lived and reacted from hearts full of love. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Unfortunately, the Christian church in the U.S. Uh, has not had very clear eyes or full hearts of late, and so a lot of damage has been done to the popular understanding of what it means to be a Christian. The Atlantic Magazine recently published an article entitled, uh, The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. And it was written by a fairly conservative evangelical himself, Peter Winter, who actually uh, grew up in, in Washington, went to University of Washington for undergrad. But this, he has served uh, at, in, in three different Republican administrations, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush. He's also the vice president of a conservative think tank, Ethics and Public Policy Center. So I doubt that he and I would agree on a lot of different subjects. But I love the heart for Christ that he expresses in this article. He writes, The aggressive, disruptive, and unforgiving mindset that characterizes so much of our politics has found a way, a home in many American churches. The root of the discord lies in the fact that many Christians have embraced the worst aspects of our culture and politics. The result is that many Christian followers of Trump specifically have come to see a gospel of hatreds, resentments, vilifications, put-downs, and insults as expressions of their Christianity, for which they too should be willing to fight. He quotes uh, the author Mark Knoll. Much of what is distinctive about American evangelicalism is not essential to Christianity. Peter Wenner goes on, and he is surely correct. I would add only that it is, isn't simply the case that much of what is distinctive about American evangelicalism is not essential to Christianity. It is that now, in important respects, much of what is distinctive about American evangelicalism has become antithetical to authentic Christianity. What we're dealing with, not in all cases, of course, but in far too many, is political identity and cultural anxieties, anti-intellectualism, ethnic nationalism, resentments and grievances, all dressed up as Christianity. He writes, Jesus now has to be reclaimed from his church, from those who pretend to speak most authoritatively in his name. For many of us, he writes, for many of us who have made Christianity central to our lives, the pain of this moment is watching those who claim to follow Jesus do so much to distort who he really was. I believe the portrait I've painted in this essay is accurate, but it is also 
and necessarily incomplete. And I love this part. Countless acts of kindness, generosity, and self-giving love are performed every day by people precisely because they are Christians. Their lives have been changed and in some cases transformed by their faith. He writes, my own life has been immeasurably blessed by people of faith who have walked the journey with me, who have shown me grace and encouraged me in difficult moments. But I can recognize that while also recognizing the wreckage around us. And he points out, getting back to the clear minds and big hearts, he points out that part of the problem is the evangelical church in the U.S. over the last five decades has failed to form its adherents into disciples, true followers of Jesus. He quotes a, a professor from Baylor, uh, Alan Jacobs, culture catechizes or, or teaches. Uh, culture teaches what matters and what views we should take about what matters. Our current political culture, Jacobs argued, has multiple technologies and platforms for teaching. Television, radio, Facebook, Twitter, podcasts. People who want to be connected to their political tribe subject themselves to its catechesis, its teaching all day long, every single day, hour after hour after hour. On the flip side, he notes, many churches aren't really interested in teaching at all. They focus instead on entertainment because entertainment is what keeps people in their seats and coins in the offering plate. That's why I don't entertain at all. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> But as Jacob points out, even those pastors who really are committed to catechesis teaching get to spend on average less than an hour a week teaching their people. Sermons are short. Cable news, however, is always on. So he, the professor says, so if people are getting one kind of catechesis for half an hour per week and another for dozens of hours per week, which one do you think will win out? That is why Peter's words this morning are so important for us to hear and to follow. We need clear minds in order to be able to discern where and how the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and in our world, to be able to judge what is important and what is not in light of eternity, in light of Jesus, in light of all that we learn from praying and following Christ. And we need full hearts, hearts full of compassion, hearts prompted not by fear or hatred, but prompted by love and grace, hearts open to embracing especially those who are broken, hurting, and crying out, hearts longing not to cast out, but to lift up. The more we abide in Christ and allow Christ to abide in us, the more we will have clear minds and full hearts. Thanks be to God.